This is the Remarkable People Horror Stories Podcast. Welcome, you remarkable person. It's nice of you to be here. I'm Robert Crandall, and I'm grateful that you are here, and I hope you'll tell a friend. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can buy me a coffee on our website, horrorstoriespodcast.com. And while you're there, check out the YouTube video of my narration of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Artist Willow Brook did some artwork while the narration is playing. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool video. I hope you like it. And uh, we feature uh, nightmares on this on this show. Listener Nightmares. And on this episode, we have a creepy story sent in by Michael, who once sent in a nightmare. That can be heard, by the way, on episode 133, the story, The Occupant of the Room by Algernon Blackwood, a creepy story in itself. Michael sent in a nightmare that uh, we uh, used on that episode. Well, Michael sent in a true story this time. He writes from Joey Barr, I ran, and he says, I decided to send you a very bizarre occurrence that took place in our neighborhood some years ago. He titled the story, Fright in the Neighborhood, and it goes like this. I was the living soul of cowardice in my childhood. Any notion relating to death, funeral, and cemetery would make me shudder violently and involuntarily. Also, any direct or indirect hint of such notions was enough to give me terrifying nightmares. I do not intend to write about my frequent nightmares, but the cause of one of them. I should emphasize that the event I'm about to describe is not a byproduct of my sensitive and coward spirit, but something real that stirred up our neighborhood. In spite of I, who was a chicken-hearted creature, my father was well known for his bravery in the whole town. He was very affable and would savor his nights drinking and gambling with his friends at the local pub. I remember once he came back home around 4 a.m. in the morning and he looked as if he had gone through hell. He was soaked in sweat and trembling fiercely. His usual tranquil disposition was replaced with utter fright and panic. My mom understood the agony in his physiognomy at once and asked him solemnly to unburden himself and tell her what was torturing him. Having regained his equilibrium a bit, my dad started narrating what had occurred to him. I've never been into eavesdropping, but the word cemetery in their conversation caught my attention. I will quote my father so that you can ascertain the true nature of the horrible incident that took place. In his words, a stranger joined us at the pub tonight. He was a funny fellow and resorted to any devices to entertain and mingle with us. But we were much too drunk to listen to his ramblings. In his talk, he mentioned a mysterious cemetery the notoriety of which could not be captured by mere words. This wasn't much of a help, and we did not take him seriously. 
which raged him to call us names such as cowards, jerks, and so on. Drunk as I was, I could not digest some random guy questioning my courage and calling me a coward. So I told him I would gladly go to that cemetery tonight, take my pillow with me, and sleep on one of the graves till morning. The stranger sneered at me and told me if I were to prove him wrong, I had to do it on his terms. He said all I needed to do was go to the cemetery at midnight and hammer a nail in the wooden stand on which the dead bodies were usually bathed and shrouded. As a bonus, I could take a company and one matchstick with me to light and find the wooden stand. At first glance, it seemed as a fool's bet, so I took up the challenge and went there with the bravest of my friends, Cyrus. I got to my destination, to the suburb of the neighboring town, to find the cemetery hidden under the cover of darkness. My first impression was that any weak ray of light would disturb the residents resting in peace, and it was ideal for them, but not favorable for unexpected guests like us. The cemetery was guarded by gigantic oaks that barely allowed clear visibility of what goes on inside. It was home to countless oddly shaped tombstones and a small basement devoted to funeral conventions of bathing the dead bodies and shrouding them. The whole environment was filled with the sound of rushing river in the proximity and layers of thick fog. The further I went, the more I sensed the overwhelming sense of terror, which was being inflicted upon us. Blinded in the pitch darkness and without any device to generate light, we stumbled over several tombstones and fell down. Cyrus said that if we were to get to the basement faster and more effectively, we had to devise a strategy. I came up with the idea that I'd better unbuckle my belt and tie it to his wrist and hold its other end. This way, I could follow him and prevent falling down and at the same time inspect the whole area. We did it, and it worked. We were taking our steps carefully and looking around vigilantly, and I sensed I saw some figures wearing white shrouds at a distance from us. I convinced myself that the environment was deluding me and refused to succumb to fear, but Cyrus openly expressed his feeling of doom and gloom about the place. I resisted the idea of giving up and said that the nails should be either hammered in that bloody stand or it would be the last one in our coffins. With horror and hardship beyond measure, we reached the basement and I lighted the matchstick to locate the wooden stand. Then I gave the nail to Cyrus to hammer. He bent over the stand and started his work while I held the end of the belt in my fist tightly. With each clangor of the hammer, every fiber of my being trembled. He was finally done and I was turning to go out hastily that I felt the belt rested out of my fist. In a blink of an eye, I saw Cyrus pushed towards the wooden stand vigorously and heard his shrilling sound of desperateness as he fell down. Frenzied by this, I ran for the cemetery's gate. I just don't know what happened next and how I got here. I'm really scared, not for my fame, but for Cyrus. He's there, 
I have no idea what became of him. The following day, my dad gathered his friends and informed them of what had happened. They all went to the cemetery in search of Cyrus, and when they got to the basement, they found him lying dead on the wooden stand. As they tried to move his body, they found the nail hammered in the wooden stand through the sleeve of his shirt. Wow, what a story. Thank you, Michael, for sending that in. I guess it couldn't be suicide. An accidental death, I guess. If you have a story of something unusual or a nightmare, send it to myhorribledream at gmail.com. And now for our feature story. A man dares to spend the night in a haunted house where a murder took place. I hope you enjoy Bugham Grange by Stephen Leacock. The evening was already falling as the vehicle in which I contained entered upon the long and gloomy avenue that leads to Bugham Grange. A resounding shriek echoed through the wood as I entered the avenue. I paid no attention to it at the moment, judging it to be merely one of those resounding shrieks which one might expect to hear in such a place at such a time. As my drive continued, however, I found myself wondering in spite of myself why such a shriek should have been uttered at the very moment of my approach. I am not by temperament in any degree a nervous man, and yet there was much in my surroundings to justify a certain feeling of apprehension. The Grange is situated in the loneliest part of England, the marsh country of the Fens to which civilization has still hardly penetrated. The inhabitants of whom there are only one and a half to the square mile live here and there among the Fens and eck out a miserable existence by frog-fishing and catching flies. They speak a dialect so broken as to be practically unintelligible, while the perpetual rain which falls upon them renders speech itself almost superfluous. Here and there where the ground rises slightly above the level of the fens, there are dense woods tangled with parasitic creepers and filled with owls, Bats fly from wood to wood. The air on the lower ground is charged with the poisonous gases which exude from the marsh, while in the woods it is heavy with the dank odors of deadly nightshade and poison ivy. It had been raining in the afternoon, and as I drove up the avenue, the mournful dripping of the rain from the dark trees accentuated the cheerlessness of the gloom. The vehicle in which I rode was a fly on three wheels, the fourth having been apparently broken and taken off, causing the fly to sag on one side and drag on its axle over the muddy ground, the fly thus moving only at a foot's pace in a way calculated to enhance the dreariness of the occasion. The driver on the box in front of me was so thickly muffled up as to be indistinguishable, while the horse which drew us was so thickly coated with mist as to be practically invisible. Seldom, I may say, 
if I had a drive of so mournful a character. The avenue presently opened out upon a lawn with overgrown shrubberies, and in the half-darkness I could see the outline of the grange itself, a rambling, dilapidated building. A dim light struggled through the casement of a window in a tower room, save for the melancholy cry of a row of owls sitting on the roof and the croaking of frogs in the moat which ran around the grounds, the place was soundless. My driver halted his horse at the hither side of the moat. I tried in vain to urge him, by signs, to go further. I could see by the fellow's face that he was in a paroxysm of fear, and indeed nothing but the extra sixpence which I had added to his fare would have made him undertake the drive up the avenue. I had no sooner alighted than he wheeled his cab about and made off. Laughing heartily at the fellow's trepidation, I have a way of laughing heartily in the dark. I made my way to the door and pulled the bell handle. I could hear the muffled reverberations of the bell far within the building. Then all was silent. I bent my ear to listen but could hear nothing except perhaps the sound of a low moaning, as of a person in pain or in great mental distress. Convinced, however, from what my friend Sir Jeremy Buggam had told me, that the grange was not empty, I raised the ponderous knocker and beat with it loudly against the door. But perhaps at this point I may do well to explain to my readers before they are too frightened to listen to me, how I came to be beating on the door of Bugham Grange at nightfall on a gloomy November evening. A year before, I had been sitting with Sir Jeremy Bugham, the present baronet, on the veranda of his ranch in California. So you don't believe in the supernatural, he was saying. Not in the slightest. I answered, lighting a cigar as I spoke. When I want to speak very positively, I generally light a cigar as I speak. Well, at any rate, Digby, said Jeremy, Bugham Grange is haunted. And if you want to be assured of it, go down there any time and spend the night and you'll see for yourself. My dear fellow, I replied, nothing will give me greater pleasure I shall be back in England in six weeks, and I shall be delighted to put your ideas to the test. Now tell me, I added somewhat cynically, is there any particular season or day when your grange is supposed to be specially terrible? Sir Jeremy looked at me strangely. Why do you ask that? He said, Have you heard the story of the grange? Never heard of the place in my life, I answered cheerily. Till you mentioned it tonight, my dear fellow, I hadn't the remotest idea you still owned property in England. The Grange is shut up, said Sir Jeremy, and has been for twenty years. But I keep a man there, Horrod. He was butler in my father's time and before. If you care to go, I'll write him that you're coming. And since you're taking your own fate in your hands, the 15th of November is the day. At that moment, Lady Buggam 
and Clara and the other girls came trooping out on the veranda, and the whole thing passed clean out of my mind. Nor did I think of it again until I was back in London. Then by one of those strange coincidences or premonitions, call it what you will, it suddenly occurred to me one morning that it was the 15th of November. Whether Sir Jeremy had written to Horrod or not, I do not know. But nonetheless, nightfall found me, as I have described, knocking at the door of Buggam Grange. The sound of the knocker had scarcely ceased to echo when I heard the shuffling of feet within and the sound of chains and bolts being withdrawn. The door opened. A man stood before me holding a lighted candle which he shaded with his hand. His faded black clothes, once apparently a butler's dress, his white hair and advanced age left me no doubt that he was Horrod, of whom Sir Jeremy had spoken. Without a word he motioned me to come in, and still without speech he helped me to remove my wet outer garments, and then beckoned me into a great room, evidently the dining room of the Grange. I am not in any degree a nervous man by temperament, as I think I remarked before, and yet there was something in the vastness of the wainscoted room, lighted only by a single candle, and in the silence of the empty house, and still more in the appearance of my speechless attendant, which gave me a feeling of distinct uneasiness. As Horrod moved to and fro, I took occasion to scrutinize his face more narrowly. I have seldom seen features more calculated to inspire a nervous dread. The pallor of his face, the whiteness of his hair, the man was at least seventy, and still more the peculiar furtiveness of his eyes seemed to mark him as one who lived under a great terror. He moved with a noiseless step, and at times he turned his head to glance in the dark corners of the room. Sir Jeremy told me, I said, speaking as loudly and heartily as I could, that he would apprise you of my coming. I was looking into his face as I spoke. In answer, Horrod laid his finger across his lips, and I knew that he was deaf and dumb. I am not nervous. I think I said that. But the realization that my sole companion in the empty house was a deaf mute struck a cold chill to my heart. Horrod laid in front of me a cold meat pie, a cold goose, a cheese, and a flagon of cider. But my appetite was gone. I ate the goose, but found that after I had finished the pie, I had but little zest for the cheese, which I finished without enjoyment. The cider had a sour taste, and after having permitted Horrod to refill the flagon twice, I found that it induced a sense of melancholy and decided to drink no more. My meal finished, the butler picked up the candle and beckoned me to follow him. We passed through the empty corridors of the house, a long line of pictured buggams, looking upon us as we passed their portraits in the flickering light of the taper, assuming a strange and lifelike appearance, 
as if leaning forward from their frames to gaze upon the intruder. Horrid led me upstairs, and I realized that he was taking me to the tower in the east wing, in which I had observed a light. The rooms to which the butler conducted me consisted of a sitting-room with an adjoining bedroom, both of them fitted with antique wainscoting against which faded tapestry fluttered. There was a candle burning on the table in the sitting-room, but its insufficient light only rendered the surroundings the more dismal. Horrid bent down in front of the fireplace and endeavored to light a fire there. But the wood was evidently damp, and the fire flickered feebly on the hearth. The butler left me, and in the stillness of the house, I could hear his shuffling step echo down the corridor. It may have been fancy, but it seemed to me that his departure was the signal for a low moan that came from somewhere behind the wainscot. There was a narrow cupboard door at one side of the room, and for the moment I wondered whether the moaning came from within. I am not as a rule lacking in courage. I am sure my reader will be decent enough to believe this. Yet I found myself entirely unwilling to open the cupboard door and look within. In place of doing so, I seated myself in a great chair in front of the feeble fire. I must have been seated there for some time when I happened to lift my eyes to the mantel above and saw standing upon it a letter addressed to myself. I knew the handwriting at once to be that of Sir Jeremy Buggam. Dear Mr. Digby, In our talk that you will remember, I had no time to finish telling you about the mystery of Buggam Grange. I take for granted, however, that you will go there and that Horrid will put you in the tower rooms, which are the only ones that make any pretense of being habitable. I have, therefore, sent him this letter to deliver at the Grange itself. The story is this. On the night of the 15th of November, fifty years ago, my grandfather was murdered in the room in which you are sitting by his cousin, Sir Duggam Buggam. He was stabbed from behind while seated at the little table at which you are probably reading this letter. The two had been playing cards at the table, and my grandfather's body was found lying in a litter of cards and gold sovereigns on the floor. Sir Duggam Buggam, insensible from drink, lay beside him, the fatal knife in his hands, his fingers smeared with blood. My grandfather, though of the younger branch, possessed a part of the estates which were to revert to Sir Duggam on his death. Sir Duggam Buggam was tried at the Assizes and was hanged. On the day of his execution, he was permitted by authorities, out of respect for his rank, to wear a mask to the scaffold. The clothes in which he was executed are hanging at full length in the little cupboard to your right, and the mask is above them. It is said that on every 15th of November, at midnight, the cupboard door opens, and Sir Duggam Buggam walks out into the room. It has been found impossible to get servants to remain at the Grange, 
and the place except for the presence of Horad, has been unoccupied for a generation. At the time of the murder, Horad was a young man of twenty-two, newly entered into the service of the family. It was he who entered the room and discovered the crime. On the day of the execution, he was stricken with a paralysis and has never spoken since. From that time to this, he has never consented to leave the Grange, where he lives in isolation. Wishing you a pleasant night after your tiring journey, I remain very faithfully, Jeremy Buggum. I leave my reader to imagine my state of mind when I completed the perusal of the letter. I have as little belief in the supernatural as anyone. Yet I must confess that there was something in the surroundings in which I now found myself which rendered me at least uncomfortable. My reader may smile if he will, but I assure him that it was with very distinct feelings of uneasiness that I at length managed to rise to my feet and grasping my candle in my hand to move backward into the bedroom. As I backed into it, something so like a moan seemed to proceed from the closed cupboard that I accelerated my backward movement to a considerable degree. I hastily blew out the candle, threw myself upon the bed, and drew the bedclothes over my head, keeping, however, one eye and one ear still out and available. How long I lie thus listening to every sound, I cannot tell. The stillness had become absolute. From time to time, I could dimly hear the distant cry of an owl, and once far away in the building below, a sound of someone dragging a chain along a floor. More than once, I was certain that I heard the sound of moaning behind the wainscot. Meantime, I realized that the hour must now be drawing close upon the fatal moment of midnight. My watch I could not see in the darkness but by reckoning the time that must have elapsed, I knew that midnight could not be far away. Then presently my ear, alert to every sound, could just distinguish far away across the fens the striking of the church bell in the clock tower of Bugham Village Church, no doubt tolling the hour of twelve. On the last stroke of twelve, the cupboard door in the next room opened, there was no need to ask me how I knew it. I couldn't, of course, see it, but I could hear, or sense in some way, the sound of it. I could feel my hair, all of it, rising upon my head. I was aware that there was a presence in the adjoining room. I will not say a person, a living soul, but a presence." Anyone who has been in the next room to a presence will know just how I felt. I could hear a sound as of someone groping on the floor and the faint rattle as of coins. My hair was now perpendicular. My reader can blame it or not, but it was. Then at this very moment from somewhere below in the building there came the sound of a prolonged and piercing cry a cry as of a soul passing in agony. My reader may censure me or not, but right at this moment I decided to beat it. 
Whether I should have remained to see what was happening is a question I will not discuss. My one idea was to get out, and to get out quickly. The window of the tower room was some twenty-five feet above the ground. I sprang out through the casement in one leap and landed on the grass below. I jumped over the shrubbery in one bound and cleared the moat in one jump. I went down the avenue in about six strides and ran five miles along the road through the fens in three minutes. This, at least, is an accurate description of my sensations. It may have taken longer. I never stopped till I found myself on the threshold of the Buggam Arms in Little Buggam, beating on the door for the landlord. I returned to Buggam Grange on the next day in the bright sunlight of a frosty November morning in a seven-cylinder motor car with six local constables and a position. It makes all the difference. We carried revolvers, spades, pickaxes, shotguns, and a Ouija board. What we found cleared up forever the mystery of the Grange. We discovered Horad, the butler, lying on the dining room floor, quite dead. The physician said that he had died from heart failure. There was evidence from the marks of his shoes in the dust that he had come in the night to the tower room. On the table he had placed a paper which contained a full confession of his having murdered Jeremy Buggam fifty years before. The circumstances of the murder had rendered it easy for him to fasten the crime upon Sir Duggam, already insensible from drink. A few minutes with the Ouija board enabled us to get a full corroboration from Sir Duggam. He promised, moreover, now that his name was cleared, to go away from the premises forever. My friend, the present Sir Jeremy, has rehabilitated Buggam Grange. The place is rebuilt. The moat is drained. The whole house is lit with electricity. There are beautiful motor drives in all directions in the woods. He has had the bats shot and the owls stuffed. His daughter, Clara Buggam, became my wife. She is looking over my shoulder as I write. What more do you want? You've been listening to Buggam Grange by Stephen Leacock, who once said, It may be those who do most, dream most. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. I've enjoyed being with you, and now I must leave. But I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me. Music